on the last complicit. So we stood there and we just watched and we just waited. And then finally, like, they called the dive and they started getting out. But they were like, but we didn't find anything. Her wallet was in there. Her keys were in there. Everything was in there. Except her phone. It was the burgundy shirt just laying in the sand. It wasn't buried in the sand. It wasn't wet. It wasn't dirty. It looked fresh. There's no way that that shirt had been laying there for 10 days without any of us seeing it. We'd go to that park two or three times a day every day. It wasn't even there earlier in that day. I swear to God, Victor is walking up the shoreline, walking the dog with sunglasses on, watching us. When Lauren went missing, Gabby stopped coming over. Isn't that odd? In 29 days since this missing Cape Coral mother was last seen, Lauren DeMolo just turned 30 on Tuesday. DeMolo hasn't been seen in more than a month now. A man who calls himself a witch doctor now behind bars in the case of a missing mother. Where is Lauren DeMolo? I'm Hillary Wadsworth, and I'm Caitlin Boddy, and you're listening to Complicit. Chapter 8, Eventful Days. Happy birthday to you. On July 14th, 2020, Lauren turned 30. Those voices you just heard singing include Lauren, Lindsay, Jeffrey, Anne, and Victor. At this point, Lauren had been missing for 25 days. According to her family, she was not a person to miss a holiday. Lauren celebrated everything. If there was a glimmer of hope that their sister was just hiding out somewhere, it was now gone. Lauren would have been there to ring in her 30th birthday. The very next day, July 15th, Lauren's case went national. People magazine broke the story, and suddenly more news outlets were interested in reporting the case. Lauren DeMolo vanished without a trace on June 19th. A single mom, like so many Americans, was looking for a job during the height of the coronavirus lockdown. Our Stephanie Bauer is... The Cape Coral Police Department was feeling the pressure. Their dive team search hadn't turned up much. The only evidence they had was turned in weeks ago, and there were no leads that had yet been generated from any of the items that were found in the park. Her shirt was sent out for DNA analysis, and the two cell phones Cassie handed over were now in the hands of other experts, but the results wouldn't come in until much later. In the meantime, Detective Jones arranged for another search, this time with dogs. Cadaver dogs. Cadaver dogs are different than bloodhounds. Bloodhounds can pick out like certain people by smell, where cadaver dogs pick up on deteriorating bodies. And they also can differentiate between deteriorating humans and deteriorating animals. The search was scheduled for July 20th and started in Four Freedoms Park because at that time, the park was the focal point. The dogs arrived and began to walk around the park with their handlers. Almost immediately, something interesting happened. Detective Jones even used the word chilling as he described to Paul, Cassie, and Lindsay what happened. They brought the cadaver dogs to the park, and the cadaver dogs led them to 
Victor and Gabby's work van, which is parked across the street because that's where Victor lives and that's where the work van stays. And one of the dogs alerted on the van. So they picked up some kind of scent. The dogs got a hit on Victor and Gabby's maroon red cargo van that they used for work. They usually kept this van parked in a space under the carport in front of Victor and Ann's apartment building. Remember, Victor and Gabby work for a flooring company. Their job is to rip up old flooring and install new flooring. Inside the van were the tools to perform such installations. But that wasn't all. The dogs continued to follow a scent. Then the dogs led them all the way up to their apartment. To our mother's home. The cadaver dogs continued to trail a scent from the work van where they initially got a hit, up a flight of stairs, and directly to the front door of Victor and Anne's apartment. Jeffrey, Lauren, Lindsay, and Cassie's brother, was also still living there. I remember calling Jeffrey that night just because we were talking so much about Lauren's case. And he had said to me, Lindsay, I'm done talking to everyone. You guys really think that mom and Victor has something to do with Lauren's disappearance? The cops are here right now and they have dogs and they're asking us to leave our apartments and they want to search our apartments and mom's downstairs crying. Victor's in the park walking the dogs and I had to stay down here. He's like kept saying, you, you guys really fucked us. He thought like all of the family was against him and mom and Vic. And we had never called in for them to come check the apartment. That was just one of their investigational duties. Jeffrey was obviously anxious about the situation and blamed the rest of his family on the presence of the police and the dogs. Lindsay tried to explain that, again, they were not aware the search was even happening, let alone that the cadaver dogs would lead right to their apartment from a starting point at the park. It was a surprise for everyone. From the apartment, the dogs continued to an area behind the apartment complex where there were two portable storage units. Anne posted the following message on Facebook that evening. What an eventful day. The police came to my house with canines and said we're here to search for a body. They searched my house, did several swabs. They said we're cleared. Still no word on Lauren. Similar to Gabby saying he passed his polygraph, the police did not confirm this assertion and relayed of being cleared. In fact, the police confiscated a number of items that evening. They took the curtain out of the house, which was in front of the wash and dryer because there was no door. They took Victor and Gabby's workman. Then they went to the yard and took two trailers the dogs had on. Enclosed trailers that you could put equipment in or whatever, you know, or, you know, if you're demoing something, all your junk in the back of that, whatever, you know. The police went straight to work on the items they had taken from Victor and Anne's apartment. The curtain was sent out for DNA analysis, and the work van was searched and analyzed immediately. Surprisingly, the police returned the work van within the week. They did give the van back to Victor and Gabby to use and said that they checked out. It did check out, but it seemed like they returned it quickly due to a technicality. According to Cape Coral Police Department Forensics, because of Victor and Gabby's line of work, they install and take out carpets 
sometimes from people's homes that have passed, sometimes from bathrooms. And apparently dogs can get feces and menstrual blood and other deteriorating bodies confused because they're not hitting on like a certain scent. They're just hitting on like the chemical that your body releases when you pass away after so many hours. Aunt Sue spoke with the dog handler, whose dog had led the police to the work van, and found that she too was surprised by the follow-up after the dog search. I spoke to Nadia, who handled the dog the day that that dog searched the truck. And she said Lauren's DNA was in the front of the van, lightly, the middle of the van, but that dog laid in the back right-hand corner of that van. That dog laid down. And she said, when a cadaver dog lays down and stays, that dog is positive. The curtain and other items would take a bit longer. The shirt they found that they believed to be Lauren's was also still in the hands of the forensics department. But we hadn't seen the last of the van. A week after those trucks were brought back, Victor and Gabby went to the yard. They didn't want the same work van back, the red one. They wanted the new white one. The owner, Oscar, told them no. They had a big argument. The Oscar that Paul is referring to was not only the owner of the company where Victor and Gabby worked, but a longtime friend of Victor's as well. On July 28th, just a couple of days after the van was returned to Victor and Gabby, after the argument about getting a new work van, another tragedy happened. Two days later, Oscar's found hanging in a hotel room, the owner of the company. Victor and Gabby's boss was found dead in his hotel room. When we talked to the detectives about that, again, a coincidence in their words, that apparently their boss and the boss's wife was going through a divorce. So they believe that he hung himself. Paul dug a little deeper. He was going through a divorce for a long time. He was 72 years old. He was from Canada and he didn't care about it. That day that he was found, he was supposed to go fishing with his friends. They were waiting for him at the dock. He was supposed to bring the bait that day and he never showed up. And Matt had another thought. He remembered that Gabby returned home from work around 10 p.m. on June 18th. According to Lindsay, it was not common for Gabby and Victor to return that late. They were out until 10 or 11 at night on Thursday with the work van. Then their boss, who would be the one who, if the police asked him, you know, for any kind of records of this van or where they were supposed to be at this time, he's now dead. Chapter 9, Battle Between Good and Evil Lauren's disappearance had created a rift in the family. Victor and Anne's behavior had raised their family's suspicion since the beginning, when their absence from searches and seeming disinterest in finding Lauren began. The police and cadaver dog search only added fuel to that fire, even though so far, nothing had come back as pointing a finger to any of them. At the time of Jeffrey being really upset about the police, it was before Jeffrey had started noticing the odd things that we all had noticed. There's almost been kind of a, like a split in the family of, you know, there's people that are in support of Victor and then the rest of the family, they just kind of separate out and, you know, talk amongst themselves about what happened, who did this. Jeffrey found himself caught in the middle. He was living with Victor and Anne. 
and he was still working for the same company as Victor and Gabby, although he was assigned to different work sites and had a different work partner. His work partner was the company owner's son, who had just lost his father. But in his ear were his sisters, and they, like the police, weren't ruling anyone out as having something to do with Lauren's disappearance. And I think Jeffrey was caught in the middle because he lived there. And then he started noticing things too and started talking to us more and then coming and staying here more. Victor's elusive and evasive behavior the day they found Lauren's shirt in the park surprised everyone. It might not have been that unusual for him to ignore Cassie and Matt. He didn't interact with them on a regular basis. But Lindsay? Lindsay had at one point lived with him and her mom. Victor even now babysat Lindsay's daughter pretty frequently. It didn't make sense. He said numerous times that he treats her and believes that all of mom's kids are like his daughters and son, you know, like he treated her like a daughter. From what I know, like he picked her up constantly from work, drove her there a few times. And then Matt told us about another odd situation with Victor that occurred on July 30th, six weeks after Lauren went missing, 10 days after the cadaver dogs had paid him a visit. Victor had gotten a text message, a spam message. He texted back yeah. a picture of Lindsay, her daughter, and Lauren DeMolo all together from Lindsay's Facebook, that Victor's friends with her own Facebook. The photo Matt is describing is a picture taken from Lindsay's own Facebook uploads. It's a picture of Lindsay, Lindsay's daughter, and Lauren sitting in a sports bar-type restaurant at the countertop area, smiling from ear to ear. The photo is from May 12, 2019, which was Mother's Day that year. It's even captioned, Happy Mother's Day, in Lindsay's original post. The original photo also includes Anne on the far right-hand side, but in the version Victor sent to that spam number, she was cropped out. He sent it to himself, and then he brought it to Lindsay's brother, Jeffrey, and said, look, I think somebody is threatening us or something. You know, look, I got this message from this number. You know, it might be the person, you know, or whatever that did this. And then you can look and clearly see that he sent it to himself. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's an Android, right? We looked up the number, and it was just, it, it's just a spam call number. It, you know, it's not anything. He got a message, and then he responded to it, and then said that that number was sending him this picture, like a threat or something. For those of you who aren't familiar with Androids or how the text messaging app works on them, a sender's own messages appear in bubbles on the right-hand side of the screen in a text conversation, while messages received from others appear in bubbles on the left. This is how Jeffrey could plainly see that Victor had sent this photo as an outgoing message to that spam number, not the other way around, as Victor claimed. Lindsay told us that later on that evening, Jeffrey took a picture of Victor's phone with the text message thread pulled up on the screen. He showed his mother a little later that evening because he was concerned. Anne just looked at him and laughed. Let's talk a little bit more about Anne. 
According to her family, she had a known drinking problem, and it was something she had battled for a long time. My sister struggled with alcoholism very badly. She struggled with a lot through her life, and she's had her own demons that she's had to deal with through her life. And according to her family, Victor only indulged her addiction. Victor was a tremendous enabler. He would just feed her alcohol nonstop. It seemed to be that after Lauren left, it was just permanently drunk. She didn't work. She didn't know nothing. She sat in, in, you know, in a wheelchair and drank and got drunk every day, and that was her life. But as we mentioned in episode two, Anne was in a wheelchair voluntarily. She just put herself in a wheelchair because she got so drunk and messed up, she would fall down and break bones. So instead of falling down and breaking bones, she just decided to wheel herself all over the place. My sister wasn't in any shape to defend herself, honestly. She really wasn't. She, she just wasn't. But there was more to Anne than her drinking. She was an artist, a painter who did beautiful scenic paintings. And much like Lauren, she too was into energy. She believed in the power of prayer, vibrations, and light. She joined an online group that promised protection, guidance, healing, and enlightenment. Group members' posts range from how to raise vibrations and clear chakras to healing prayer and aura reading requests from the community. Members share intimate details of their lives and expose their vulnerabilities, fears, and worries. The community, in turn, offers words of encouragement, actionable suggestions, and of course, prayers. Anne was a casual member, initiating a post occasionally, but mostly leaving comments and prayers on other members' posts. But when she needed the community, they were there for her. Back in 2018, Anne even posted from her hospital bed in the ICU when she was admitted for sepsis poisoning following an E. coli exposure. Many thoughts and prayers had come her way. Another time she'd posted was when Victor was in the hospital. And again, thoughts and prayers came her way. She was such a believer in this online community that she introduced Lauren to it, knowing her daughter shared her interest. Lauren made her first post in December of 2016. She posted a smiling selfie and asked the community to tell her what energy they saw in her. 41 comments followed with answers from vibrant and happy energy and radiant to you don't hide your pain very well. Anne also commented on her debut post. My daughter Lauren, she's a beautiful soul. I'm so proud of you. Initially, Lauren seemed to rely on this group for emotional support and validation that everything in her life would be okay. She routinely posted selfies and asked for members to read her aura. She also opened up and revealed her most intimate life struggles. She progressed into seeking guidance on her energetic and spiritual journey. She announced that she had been practicing tarot card reading and wanted to barter with others in exchange for their healing work skill set, whatever it was. She also shared how a bout of insomnia one night led her outside where she felt that everything around her, the trees, the sky, even the air was breathing. She felt connected to the experience and wanted to share. 
to see if others had also had this experience. She had started referring to the members as brothers and sisters. And Anne always commented on her posts. But other than her mother, it seems like the rest of the family was in the dark. Just to add another layer to everything, Lindsay discovered her participation in a Facebook group and reading it just, it sounded like total BS. Using the way she was talking on there, it sounded like almost speaking another language. Oh yeah, I even have, I have one of her little paragraph of what she wrote on there and it was, I'll have to send it to you. It's just like, she talks about a real battle of good and evil. The paragraph Lindsay is referring to was posted on June 11th, 2020, eight days before Lauren went missing. Here are some excerpts. Does anyone feel like there's a real battle between good and evil right now? I feel like I'm finally having my awakening. I've been meditating and speaking to my higher self lately. I believe it's as though I'm on my own frequency and I believe in energy and the power of love and light. I feel like us have to gather together to keep the balance. There's something bigger going on. I feel it deep within. Surprisingly, for as involved in the group as Anne had been, she did not reach out to the group when Lauren went missing. However, she did comment on an unrelated post from another member and shared that her daughter had been missing for a month at that point. Not too long after that, other members began to share posts about Lauren's case with the Cape Coral tip hotline information. And there was another member of the group making headlines. On August 16th, across the state in Hollywood, Florida, it was reported that a man named Shannon Ryan was in FBI custody on charges of kidnapping a child. The child's mother, Layla Cavett, who was similar in age to Lauren, is still missing as of the recording of this podcast. Shannon, a self-proclaimed witch, tarot card teacher, and spiritual guru, was the last person to have seen this woman alive. He was caught on cameras with Layla in the days leading up to her disappearance, and a solid link between him and Layla was made. But followers of Lauren's case were quick to find similarities. And even more interesting was the fact that there were three other missing women also connected to this group. Two had disappeared from Florida. All of these missing women, including Lauren, followed Shannon as well on Facebook, where he posted his incantations and witchy musings. For a fee, you too could learn to be a witch, a sorcerer, or a tarot card reader. On August 18th, 61 days missing, NBC2 aired a story about how the cases were potentially connected and cited this online spiritual group as the common link. Again, Paul was interviewed, and the reporter, from Four Freedoms Park, reviewed the evidence that had been found thus far. This was a new lead, to be sure. But others, like Cassie, didn't believe her sister and Layla Cavett's cases were connected. She found like a lot of online connections. I don't find like any significance to that. We did not find any specific connection between Shannon Ryan and Lauren. He did not comment on her posts and vice versa. Nor did we find any specific connection between Layla Cavett and Lauren. Shannon Ryan remains in FBI custody. (sighs) 
Meanwhile, Paul had been doing a little investigating of his own and found his own lead. He had visited Lauren's place of employment, a Taco Bell in the nearby town of Fort Myers, and discovered that Lauren had an admirer. Gabby got her job at Taco Bell. The manager of Taco Bell, this guy Luis, his wife is Gabby's cousin. During my investigation while I was down there, this guy, Sandy, that kept coming into the Taco Bell and trying to hit on Lauren. From my understanding from the manager, Lauren kept on telling this guy, no, she was in a relationship. No, 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 no. As soon as Lauren went missing, he stopped going in there. Nobody saw him again. And according to Paul's sources, he had stopped going to Taco Bell before Lauren's case was even reported to the police. Paul brought this information to Detective Jones, who did locate and follow up with Sandy. According to Paul, Detective Jones said that Sandy had cooperated and even shown him his phone, but Detective Jones didn't get vibes from him, and he was not deemed a person of interest. That didn't exactly sit right with Paul, who had looked a bit deeper into Sandy's past. I did a background on him, turns out that he was convicted for prostitution and human trafficking out of Miami. All of a sudden, he stops coming in. My daughter's missing, and he has this kind of past. Paul also found the connection between Sandy and Taco Bell. Well, the guy, the manager, that's his cousin. This guy, Luis, the manager, he worked in three different Taco Bells. Two out of the three Taco Bells that he worked in, two of his employees, which he hired, were arrested for human trafficking. And in the second one, there was a girl abducted and found beaten almost half to death under a bridge. Paul now understood Gabby's seemingly flippant comment about even looking under the bridge for Lauren. While Paul was investigating in neighboring Fort Myers, Danny was searching more locally in Cape Coral. She discovered that there was someone keeping quiet about Lauren's disappearance. We've had to bleep out this guy's name since he may be of interest to the police. The girl who organized the search, made a map, and she had different streets and different locations for each team. She did say not to go to 808. It is a very well-known apartment complex where there is known trafficking, drug use. It's very close proximity to Lauren, half a mile or less away very well known to the CCPD. And that is why the woman said, don't go there because it's bad news and we don't want to put anyone at risk. I tend to want to find out everything and anything. So that was actually the first place I went to. Much like when I went to Victor's house, something compelled me to go upstairs and go to this one. It was and I walked up to him and I showed him the flyer and I said, hi, do you know this girl? She's missing. He said he had never seen Lauren, never heard of Lauren. And I said, okay, thank you. 
And so then I just continued walking around to different houses. I knocked on dozens and spoke to different people. Some people said that they had seen her, but no one knew specifically what had happened to her. Danny continued talking to people in the complex, and a neighbor pointed out to her that the man Danny showed the picture to was known for getting women messed up on drugs or alcohol, and he and his girlfriend would engage in sexual activity with these women and record them. According to this neighbor, this man's girlfriend had blonde hair, so when Danny went back to 808 and saw a girl come around the corner with blonde hair, she was curious if this was the man's girlfriend. So she asked her. She goes, no. And I asked her about And she supported what that man had said, how they were heavy into drugs. They were heavy into reporting women. And then while she and I were talking, another woman came up who lived in a downstairs apartment. And I asked her, just like I had asked everyone, have you seen this girl? Do you know her? And she said that she had seen Lauren and at actually three local bars in the area, Backstreet's, Rusty's, and the Monkey Bar. So it was interesting that she had confirmed that had in fact spent time with Lauren and that this woman had witnessed it. When I saw him, he said, oh, I don't know her, And I said, would you like the flyer? He said, oh, yes, I'll pass it around. These kinds of interactions are ones that make you wonder. Who else was keeping quiet? And who else could have known something about Lauren but was staying under the radar? Chapter 10, A Bad Situation. A little closer to home, Gabby was ready to talk publicly again. On August 10th, he gave his second news interview, this time to NBC2. To this news outlet, he had a different theory than his first interview with Wink News. He first reiterated, I don't even nervous, because I really didn't, you know, I don't know anything. Then he continues, Maybe she was looking for an apartment to get out of where we were at. So I was thinking, She was looking for an apartment around, I don't know, maybe someone took advantage of that. And that was it. And never came back. That's my theory. And as a final statement, the News 2 reporter said, quote, Gabriel said she wasn't using drugs and wouldn't harm herself. So now it's not her friend getting her messed up on drugs. This is where he contradicts himself on his first theory when he talked to Wink News back in July then presents an alternative theory of his own, an apartment search. Gabby had mentioned an apartment search. Strangely, Lauren looking for an apartment had come up. Let's now rewind back a bit to episode one, to that anonymous source. The morning of Friday, June 19th, a man who wished to remain anonymous said he saw Lauren that morning around 8.30 a.m., She appeared to be walking toward her apartment from the direction of Four Freedoms Park. We now know the anonymous source is a maintenance worker in various buildings in the area, including Victor and Anne's apartment building where Lauren used to live. And this maintenance worker had more information to share. 
He told police that Thursday, June 18th, one day prior to Lauren's disappearance, Lauren approached him in the afternoon to ask if he knew about any available apartments because she, quote, had to get out of a bad situation. He told other people about Lauren approaching him too. He sent a message to a friend stating, I seen her at the pool on Atlantic Avenue last week. I talked to her at the pool. She was asking if any apartments were available. She said she had to get out of a bad situation. Is all I know. I told her to call the office. The maintenance man on three occasions that we know of described his conversation with Lauren in a way that seemed like she wanted to get out of a bad situation. Not she and Gabby. Not the we Gabby described in his News 2 interview. Lauren also confided in her friend, Erica, about needing to get out of a bad situation, specifically to get away from Gabby. I look on Messenger and I see this message from her that, you know, he beat her up and that she's scared and she just wants out of this relationship. Her message said, I don't know what to do. I need to get out of this situation. I need help. on the next Complicit. A peek inside Lauren and Gabby's relationship. They were hugging and kissing and dancing, but like not all relationships are rainbows and butterflies, you know? We went to the 7-Eleven across the street and I found out that Lauren had gone to the 7-Eleven frequently and she would share that she was in a really bad relationship. Lauren's friends weigh in. I just have this gut feeling that he knows. He knows where she is. You don't live with somebody. You're with them 24-7. They become missing, and you just, you know nothing. Her family continues to dig into her past. I come to find out there's a lot of things I didn't know about my girl. Yeah, and it all wasn't good. But where is Lauren DeMolo? listening to Complicit, a true mystery podcast about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo. If you have any information about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo, please call 1-800-780-TIPS. That's 1-800-780-8477. Or go to www.capecops.com slash tips. Or you can text a tip to crimes. That's 274637. Tips can be left anonymously, and there is a reward currently being offered for information leading to an arrest. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and continued developments in Lauren's case. For additional information you won't hear and can't see on the podcast, visit our website at complicit-podcast.com. Also, be sure to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Complicit Podcast, on Twitter at complicit underscore pod, and on Instagram at complicit underscore podcast. Complicit is a production of Seventh Guest Productions and produced by Resonate Recordings.
And now, here's another podcast we like, and you may as well. <laughs> 